gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem. This is General Ike, building Jerusalem. Dr. Alon Goshen Gottstein is one of the world's leading figures in interfaith dialogue. He is an ordained rabbi and founder of the Elijah Interfaith Institute, an organization which has played host to such luminaries as Patriarch Bartholomew I of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, former British Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, and the Dalai Lama. Dr. Alon, your, uh, your father in blessed memory was the late uh, Moshe Goshen Gottstein. Not Moshe, Moshe. Moshe, yeah. All right, I'm, I'm losing all of the Ashkenazi points today. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. He was the scholar who uh, famously established the authenticity of the Aleppo Codex. Yes. And your mother, was, your mother Esther was a clinical psychologist. Still is. Still is a clinical psychologist. You should live long. So your, your childhood home, I hear, was open to people of diverse faiths. Uh, it was indeed. It was an academic home and also open to people of different faith. And not having grown up in a closed space allowed me to expand further. How did how did your childhood inform your later perspective on religion? Oh, deep deep childhood traumas that led to a spiritual quest. Obviously, <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't ask for elaboration. No, let's move on to to the lar- to the later part. Great. Uh, according to your Wikipedia page. You're uh, affiliated with several Hasidic communities and have been deeply influenced by Hasidic teaching and spirituality. That is correct. That is correct. I stand by that. Which what groups? Oh, I have a very deep Breslov connection. I was a student of Rabbi Gedalia Kenig, Alava Shalom. I have a strong connection with Slonim Hasidim, with Lelov Hasidim, with Mojitz Hasidim, with Bahush Hasidim. I spent some time in Lubavitch. I, I go where I find the light. And... Uh, could you, I mean, obviously that's a that's a lot to summarize, but could you talk a little bit about what sort of direction your connection with these Hasidic movements has taken you? You know, I like I like people with intense spiritualities, focused towards God. Uh, all too often, focus comes also with a certain narrowness, closed-mindedness. So you take the good from people and you ignore the rest. But there's an intensity in, uh, in, uh, in the quest for God, which is very, very significant. Twenty years ago, you founded the Elijah Interfaith Institute. What was your intention for the Institute at the time, and what has it grown into since then? That's a very good question. My intention at the time was to create a space which was mainly academic for students to come study together, because at the time I was mainly an academic. Uh, due to various circumstances, it's morphed, and the emphasis is less on training students and more on serving religious leadership and communities worldwide and in creating in Jerusalem a center where all the religions come together, the Hope Center. So it's really moved from a kind of pure academia to academia in the service of uh, religious and interreligious activism. Religious and interreligious activism. Yeah, because to certain, yeah, there's an agenda. There's an agenda of bringing people together, creating educational media resources to help people's minds expand, change their perception, uh, open their hearts, create relationships. So there's definitely been a shift for from something that was 
with a more academic emphasis, but open to dialogue, to something that's more dialogue-oriented, but with academic grounding. One of the big ideas to come out of the Elijah Interfaith Institute and your own writings is the idea of the religious genius. Could you summarize that concept? With pleasure. Religious genius is a way of describing people who are, on the one hand, masters of their own spiritual selves who have attained a great degree of personal spiritual perfection. We measure this through their capacity to love, to serve, humility, uh, how, they, how they live uh, really in another reality to which they, they match this reality. And at the same time, people who have been agents of change and transformation to help to create new religious forms in their religions. And they're called geniuses because of their creative uh, contribution to the religion, because of their outstanding intellectual input, uh, output rather, and because of how they've been transformative in the way the geniuses are in other areas. It's also easier for people who are not religious to admire. There's something inherently admirable about the notion of genius. So it's easy to admire these people who we, whom we call religious geniuses, and we hope thereby to create a category by means of which people can appreciate outstanding individuals in other religions. So the book that I published recently is subtitled Appreciating Outstanding Individuals Across Religions. Religious Genius, and then that subtitle. In a piece for Slate's Big Ideas section, you described an aspect of this religious genius uh, like in this way. We might go so far as considering a notion of genius of love, that is, an interpretation of a higher meaning of reality expressed through a life of love and a way of being in the world rather than through a teaching. So I'll be seeing in a few days uh, one of the teachers who uh, is part of the member of the Elijah Board of World Religious Leaders that I created, a woman called Amma, a Hindu teacher who I have great feeling for. And her life is a life of love and service, and that's the message that she radiates. And she's not an intellectual genius, but when you think of her, you can think of a genius of love, someone who, through his capacity of loving, ends up transforming and creating new forms in the religions and offering new teachings, but they're founded on something that is this impulse of love, which to begin with, I suggested earlier, was part of the composition of the religious genius. And, and that, that sort of genius of love... Uh, is more of a, a way of being in the world rather than a way of thinking? Uh, it's both, but it grows not from... Uh, it grows It grows from the way of being and then translates into thinking, uh, which is really in some way true of all religious genius. Uh, but the genius of love really profiles that in a much stronger way, being, suggesting it's less of a teaching or less of an intellectual contribution, but one that is expressed through one's life. This concept of, uh, of a genius of love is the first of uh, what you list as six different elements of religious genius. No, no, no. The category of love is the first of the six elements, not the genius of love. The model suggests that there are six different components, all of which are aspects of the religious genius. So those six components are love, expanded awareness of reality, the logic of imitation, purity, humility, and self-surrender. I would, have changed, I would have changed the sequence, but those are the elements, yeah. You would have changed the sequence? Yeah, because I would put the logic imitation at, at the end, because that really says what, what the people, they're living in relation to a higher reality, and therefore they seek to imitate it. I would have put love, purity, humility, self-surrender, expanded awareness, 
logic of imitation. I think that's even the sequence that I list them in. Okay, so some of these concepts would be very familiar to uh, people who are who have a, a sense of New Age religion or um, who, are, who participate in any of, of a lot of uh, diverse religious experiences today, but others would be much harder to... Which one do you consider are harder? I would consider offhand, like, the notion of purity has very much gone out of fashion. Uh, what, is, what does purity mean to you? It's the key to a successful spiritual life. Uh, if, if our lives are to, if we're to be mirrors to a higher light, if you don't polish the mirror, I won't reflect well. Purity is getting rid of all the, the grossness, the ego, the desire, the selfishness, everything that's in us. You have to clear that in order to, that's all, that all comes under purity. I'm not talking about ritual purity, I'm talking about moral, spiritual purity. For those who aren't familiar with that concept, could you elaborate on that a bit? Well, we grow up in a society that panders to our desires and that seeks to fulfill them. And that puts us in the center and the enjoyment and pleasure at the center. And purity assumes a, a, a constant chipping away at the ego, at the desire, at the selfishness, at anything that, 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 that keeps you narrow and focused on yourself and opens you up to the capacity to attain all these other qualities. So purity is the essential component of all other aspects of the spiritual life. I had a teacher once whose motto was purity, purity, and more purity. There's a, a, a difficulty as well for a lot of people in seeing humility as a virtue in the modern time. How, how do you explain that as a virtue to those who, who see it as something defunct or okay? You know, really, the Torah says about Moses that he was the greatest and he was the most humble. And the key to greatness is in humility. I would say even that maybe the greatest person I've ever met was the person with the deepest humility. Or humility that grows from a full awareness of the presence of God and where the person is in it. And personally, if there's one quality I would seek more than all else, it's, it's, it's humility, which is a sign of how, how much I like it. And, uh, and humility is the correct perception of where we are in the world and therefore how little we really are in relation to God's greatness. It doesn't mean I'm nothing. It means I'm nothing in relation to the vastness of God. I can be many things. I can be creative. I can be, I can be a great personality in human terms. Yet the humility sees itself in the broader connection that comes from the soul in association with God and therefore recognizes how, how little we are. And this is a rela related to the notion of self-surrender or are they quite distinct for you? Everything, all these notions are, are, are interrelated. So the humility allows the self-surrenders, but self-surrender is really letting go of the will. But it's, it's all intimately tied. Everything is, it's all of a, it's all of a kind. Letting go of the will? Absolutely. Self-surrenders, you let go of the will and you become an instrument for a higher will, the will of God. Is there anything that you can uh, give as a practical example of that to people who find that idea uh, foreign and maybe a little frightening? Well, it depends who the people are, but you know, every time a Jew uh, does a mitzvah, he's surrendering his will to God's will and doing something he might have not wished to do or doesn't understand the meaning of. Every time you have to control a desire, you're surrendering your will to something else. When you view your life and you seek to do God's will, what is Jesus, the whole voice, you know, uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, is the first thing. And the Lord's Prayer, the centrality of raising the will, the will is who we are, and our spiritual growth is the raising of our will, and therefore the surrender of the will is, comes at a point where your will becomes as transparent as possible to the divine will, and you live your life in accordance with the divine plan.
your religious genius concept, is this something that applies only to outliers and extraordinary people, or is it something for us ordinary folk to integrate into our lives? It's a way of describing extraordinary people, and they ultimately have to serve as kinds of models for everyone. So we all replicate it in our own way. There's a tension between great personalities and what is imitable and what is not imitable. So religious geniuses, in some way, they're unique. They can do it, and yet they also invite us to follow suit. And can you give us a practical advice for people who like the ideas you're talking about but see them as massive and too hard to approach? How, do, how does someone begin to chip away at this? Spend time reading the writings of the great people. Because by reading them, you go deeper and deeper into them. There's no point reading my work. I'm just a signpost. They're also signposts. We're all signposts to the ultimate reality. But I'm signpost to the signposts. And, the, you know, if you read the great spiritual... Those people who whom religious communities recognize as the great personalities, you spend time reading their works, you get to the core of that message, and you gradually imbibe it, and it transforms your life. This is what religions are. Religions are storehouses of great spiritual teachings and models to be emulated. Who are these great people to you? To me, I'm a great devotee of uh, Ralph Cook. I, I study his works daily, I try to study his works daily constantly reminded of, of the fullness of this vision of religious genius in this one person. But as you mentioned earlier, my affiliation with other Hasidic communities, all the great spiritual teachers in Judaism and in other religions can all serve as pointers and inspirations for this. Jews and Muslims are getting along particularly poorly at this point in history. How was it in the past and how can we move towards a better future together? Um, there were moments when that wasn't the case. You probably heard of the Jewish Sufis, a movement that had some of the very, very important literary creativity that's relevant to this very day, the work of Bachya ibn Pakuda, the work of Rabbi Abraham Maimonides, the son of Rabbi Moses Maimonides, who started a whole dynasty of Sufism, Jewish Sufism, including various reforms in the synagogue liturgy. And it was part of sharing a common spiritual universe. It's possible when religion is depoliticized. The problem with Islam, it's so politicized and currently caught up with the politics of, of the country here in Jerusalem that it makes it very hard. But certain groups, like Sufis today, and I believe you have one or two things you know about those groups, do create openings for connections that either transcend or allow the bridging of relations between Jews and Muslims. And if we go to the depth of it and we go beyond the political will, you discover there's great commonalities both in spirituality and the structure of the religions and the affinity of law and ultimately in seeking to do God's will between these two religions. There have been highs and lows in that religion and our job is to recreate those highs. What do you see as, as the first steps towards recreating those highs? Um, encounter, study, mutual understanding. Building on friendship and then start to create alternatives. The point is that there's fear. There's fear of the Jews of the Muslims, there's fear of the Muslims among themselves of opening up because of other Muslims. So we're dominated right now by ignorance, fear, and violence, which are almost like the opposite pole of religious genius. What would you recommend is for a Jew who's never read a Muslim work, what would you recommend to start with? Ibn al-Arabi. The Bezels of Wisdom. I wouldn't know what particularly what particular books to recommend. Um, um, blanking on his name, um, the great reformer um, Al Ghazali. 
Uh, even the example of Emir Abdul Qadr. Uh, we'll leave it at that. While the problems between Jewish and Muslim worlds are largely practical, our issues with Hindus and Christians are mainly theological. To many Jews, uh, Hinduism and Christianity fall under the halachic or Jewish legal category of Avodah or foreign worship. Do you see the path towards greater friendship as getting us out of the Avodah assessment, or is it as accepting that these faiths are halakhically Avodah and loving their constituents anyway? Well, it doesn't say anywhere that you can't love people who are idolaters. In other words, you may not deal with them in a certain way. And also, even if we have the distinction between the category of Avodah for ourselves and for others, something may be Avodah for us and not for others. So Rav Kok is very explicit about the importance of love of people of other faiths, even if it were the case that they were Avodah But a lot of work has to go into that, and I have published a book on status of Hinduism as Avodah as have some other colleagues of mine. And it's not, not so, so cut and clear that all Hinduism should be viewed in a blanket way as Avodah nor Christianity. And therefore we need to have a more receptive and open appreciation of those religions to help us take them beyond, beyond this uh, charge of Avodah and certainly to begin to appreciate their spiritual riches and to build foundations of relationships. But there is, even if we were to declare them a Vodazar, that's not the end of what could be relevant in our relationship with them. Do you feel like the uh, relatively recent rediscovery of the Yuri's work is uh, important to this task? Essential. Essential? Essential. I think the Yuri is the most important thinker to guide our way forward nowadays. Okay. Could you uh, give a, a brief summary of who he was? And the Meiri was, was a medieval Jewish thinker who basically, rather than proceeding based on uh, an analysis of people's ritual habits, tried to identify what is a valid religion and recognized that a religion that teaches morality and takes a person towards God need not agree with us in theology or in practice, but as long as the core principles are there, it recognizes its validity and therefore opens the channels for respect, recognition, and even learning from the other. To, to change gears entirely for a second, the Rohingya people of Burma are currently facing intense persecution. A prayer for them was included in a recent newsletter uh, of your own Elijah Institute. I, I, plead, I plead guilty to having composed that prayer. Yeah. You composed the prayer? Yeah. Could you briefly explain the situation and tell us if there's anything that we in the West can do to help? I don't know. I don't know, because it's so politicized, and people called for us to issue a statement of condemnation, and I find that statements of condemnation are not really useful. So we condemn, we condemn the, the Burmese for persecuting the, the Rohingya, Mazel Tov, so what? You say a prayer, so that gives people a tool, puts their thoughts into it. They're really sincerely praying, gives them the opportunity to think what they can do, contribute, help, public opinion. I don't know what can be done. It's a very difficult situation. Could you explain the basic situation? The basic situation is that you have a national conflict there that's religiously fueled because there's a Buddhist majority country that considers a significant minority of Muslims who are in a certain part to be extraneous to that country, doesn't recognize them. Those people have no citizenship. Uh, this situation has been going on now for quite a long time. and As a consequence of that, they, uh, it, violence has erupted that has led to disproportionate uh, counter-retaliation by the Burmese, known as Myanmar, who have been then described as, you know, by UN bodies as uh, ethnic cleansing and or genocide. Taking it back to the, to the physical city of Jerusalem, where we're sitting now, 
the if someone is interested in the work that you're doing with the Elijah Interfaith Institute with uh, the Hope Institute, we haven't described the Hope. So let's why don't you describe it for the sure. So the vision of the Hope is to create in Jerusalem a space for all religions, a space where religions uh, teach, visit, experience museum, and have parallel prayers of space. So HOPE is acronym for House of Prayer and Education. So it's a kind of messianic vision of bringing the religions together in Jerusalem so that they can share. And we're looking, we, you know what, uh, one hour from now there's a session we do monthly called Praying Together in Jerusalem. Unfortunately I'm teaching elsewhere and they shifted the time so I can't attend it today. I'll give you the address later. You can go there and witness this experience of Praying Together in Jerusalem. Maybe you can find someone to make up for the other half hour of the missing interview that I can't give you, unfortunately. The, the Praying Together in Jerusalem already gives a little foretaste of what a future Hope Center would be in bringing together Jews, Christians, and Muslims in parallel prayer, but then also coming together. So it creates a dynamic of friendship and recognition and, and, and prayer alongside one another. So um, the long-term vision is for this to be institutionalized and to become... Uh, expressed in a monumental building that will draw attention and visitors and further dynamism to the whole vision. With with this as as a, obviously a central component, what is your vision of a better Jerusalem? A Jerusalem which people don't walk past each other and don't ignore each other. They're not transparent to one another, but they're real. They're humans. They're respectful of one another. They recognize each other's share in the history. They they recognize that 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 the Jerusalem is constituted by all of us together. And that consequently, it becomes what it's supposed to be, a city of peace. And it's not just the internal Jewish tribes that own it jointly, as the Psalm says, I think in Psalm 122 or 121. But all different tribes, other words, nations, other words, people, other words, uh, religions, all have a share. And it can radiate a message of peace and harmony globally. Thank you very much, Rabbi Elan. It's been a pleasure. If someone wants to get uh, involved in the, in the Hope Prayers, how can they find out more about when the next one is? Well, every every Thursday, the last Thursday of the month, we we have this uh, Praying Together in Jerusalem. Google it, Praying Together in Jerusalem. Google the Elijah Interfaith Institute. Google the Hope Center. Sign up for the newsletter. Come and visit. Join. Be part of it. Dr. Alon, thank you so much. Thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.